Let's go Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Uh, if you don't uh, have a Bible, we will have the uh, text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, if you are... Um, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, don't have one that you can call yours, uh, we could actually fix that pretty quick. Uh, we like giving Bibles away around here. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things. Chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and around and about your life to be defined by knowing Him, shaped by knowing Him, uh, evaluated through the lens of knowing Him. And so uh, we like putting Bibles in people's hands and then finding creative ways for people to be reading them. So if you don't have one of your own, come talk to me after class and uh, uh, we can do something about that. Uh, Mark chapter 15. Uh, so we are a few weeks now into uh, an effort uh, to kind of take a step back and, and uh, kind of figure out why we do certain things or, or maybe why we do things in a certain way, uh, specifically in the life and the rhythms of the gathering of the church. Uh, we're kind of channeling our inner four-year-old uh, for the next couple of months uh, and, and just asking the why question. But why this? But, but why that? And, and if you style yourself or at least I try to, if you style yourself as a little bit of a thinker, uh, the why question is a question that you probably actually enjoy, right? Uh, it's, it, it causes you to stop and just kind of pay attention to the world and try to put the pieces together. And, and so uh, if you're a personality like mine, like I, I, I kind of get lost in my head sometimes trying to think things through that other people don't ever bother trying to think things through. Um, and so sometimes taking a, a moment to investigate how the sausage gets made kind of kind of changes the way you look at something, right? Uh, you realize, you, or you come to this kind of moment where you're like, why have I been doing that? That doesn't make any sense at all. Or maybe it shifts the way you approach something. Maybe, maybe you did it in, in, in some fashion this way, but you decided to do the same thing, but in a different fashion this way. And so it adjusts the way you approach something. But then sometimes, sometimes, and I love these sometimes, figuring out how all the things come together, how all the pieces fit together, take something that we've always just assumed, and, and it, like, it ends up affirming the very thing that we were doing. You ever found those moments in your life where you've always just kind of done something a specific way and then you figured out the why behind it and then all of a sudden you're raring to go? I love those moments. I absolutely adore those moments. Those moments where you say, well, of course that how, that's how it works. How else would we view this thing? And, and I'm of the opinion, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm alone in this opinion, but I'm of the opinion that a whole bunch of things that we do in the regular weekly gathering of the church actually falls into that latter category. I'm of the opinion that a lot of the things that we do in the regular weekly gathering of the church falls into the, well, of course that's how we've always done it. Why, how would we do it any, else, any other way? Maybe, we, maybe it was handed to us for, for nothing else but for the sake of tradition, and maybe we've walked through it blindly for however long, but if we would just stop and actually ask the why question, God might use that question to change our opinion of it and influence us for the better. Um, but if you remember, uh, we, we, we didn't just run into this blindly, right? We gave ourselves some measuring sticks, some guardrails. Um, 
some guardrails, a couple of measuring sticks to help us figure out if the questions that we were asking actually landed us in a healthy place. Uh, Deconstructing things just for the sake of deconstruction is a pretty dangerous practice. And so we wanted to make sure that we landed in a safe place. And so we gave ourselves a couple of guardrails. And the first guardrail was this. Our reasons for doing something need to originate in and be ultimately shaped by the Bible rather than pragmatism. Uh, That's a loaded sentence, I'll say it again. Uh, Our reasons for doing something need to be uh, originate in and be ultimately shaped by the Bible rather than pragmatism. Now, those two things, the the biblical ideal and what gets results, those two things aren't always mutually exclusive. They're not enemies of each other, but sometimes they're very opposite roads to take. Sometimes they are are very different, and we need to have the the biblical wisdom, the, the spiritual maturity, we could call it, to understand the distinction between the two and act accordingly, right? When, they, when those two paths do diverge, we need to know which one is the healthy path. And so we, we don't want to tie ourselves to, to whatever happens to be getting attention for a given moment. We want to aim for slow, steady growth, right? Those, those of you who, are do, who do the stock market thing, you, you're scared of the things that go up and down really fast, Right? You, you want the things that grow steadily, all right? So the same is true of the church. We want slow, steady growth. And so we ultimately protect what God has called us to do and to, to be as a church, not by chasing after what we think is going to be valuable 10 minutes from now or 10 months from now or even 10 years from now, but by chasing after what the Bible says will still be valuable 10,000 years from now. That's what we want to aim ourselves at. So the first measuring stick is, Our reasons for doing something need to originate in and be ultimately shaped by the Bible rather than pragmatism. But the second guardrail slash measuring stick we gave ourselves was this. That the priorities of our gathering need to be focused on what builds up the body rather than what expands the body. And again, those two things aren't mutually exclusive things, but sometimes they are. Sometimes they're very different things. This means that that we're okay with the awkward moment around here. Why? Because we're not trying to sell ourselves. We don't have to try to convince anybody of anything. Listen, if a visitor leaves here really, really impressed with what the show that we put on, but they don't leave here impressed with the Jesus we claim to love, we have failed. Right? We have failed totally. In fact, if that's what we're aiming for, if we're really impressed, aiming for impressing the visitor, then, then maybe we should start calling ourselves a marketing team rather than a church. Those are very different things, right? Well, what about evangelism and disciple making? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we seek to try to save as many as possible? Absolutely we should. Those, in fact, we call it around here our, our one job to do, disciple making. Jesus gave that command to his followers in, in Matthew 28, right? And so, but the trajectory of evangelism and discipleship does not point to you finally getting your friend to come here so somebody on the stage can tell them about Jesus. The arrow points the other way. We want to, uh, we want to use this gathering to train you and equip you and boldly send you out to where the lost people are. That's what we're aiming for here. We don't, we don't gather the lost in here in an effort to try and save them. We send growing disciples out from here to the, the places where lost people need to know about Jesus so that you and Jesus can get to work on saving them. That's our aim in here. Well, what about the lost people that do happen to find themselves in this room? I, like, what do we do with them? 
I promise we're going to tell them about Jesus while they're here. They're going to hear about it. Trust me. Jesus has designed his church to be attractive. And the closer you look at it, yeah, we got warts, and yeah, we got scars. But man, if you, if you really look at his bride, she is beautiful. Jesus has designed his church to be attractive, but the most attractive thing about us is the otherworldly king we love. And spend our time and our energy dedicating ourselves to pursuing And so the priorities of the gathering need to be focused on what builds up the body rather than what seeks to expand the body. And if Jesus decides to save some folk while we're here doing that, then awesome. We'll we'll be careful to give him the glory for that, right? So it'll be a good day. So we got a couple measuring sticks now. Uh, we, we started uh, applying our why question to a few things. You know, back in week one, we, we talked about why we gather, and then we followed that up by why we proclaim God's word, why we read it and preach it, and then we followed that up with why we sing. And then last week, we, we got to, to have an even more special day and when we talked about why we baptized, right? All right, and so you ready for our, our, our next one? This week, I want to look at why we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a gathered church. And I want that piece on the end of it on purpose. Not just why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but why we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a gathered church. I think that's an important question to, to apply the, the why question to. Um, and so uh, just like last week, uh, this isn't one that we hit every single week, uh, but we try to make it pretty regular around here. Uh, if you look at the calendar, it ends up landing about every eight to ten-ish weeks for us. Uh, just, to, just between you and me, we say we like to do it every eight to ten weeks, uh, but then what happens is we get about six or seven, eight weeks in, and we go, hey, we haven't done Lord, Lord's Supper in a while. Uh, that looks like a good date, and so we put it on the calendar. All right, That's how we handle it around here. Um, and so uh, just like last week, this isn't an every, every week activity for us, but also just like last week, there's a whole bunch of confusion around this topic, right? Anybody got that locked down? If you were to find yourself in the middle of a theological debate about the Lord's Supper, how many of you feel like you're the ringer in the contest? Maybe not? Partially, partially because Well, churches don't often teach very clearly what it is they believe about this stuff. Same with baptism last week, right? That's part of the problem. Uh, Partially, though, because we've got people that have bounced around from here to there, and they've syncretized this view from this church and this view from that church, and they've kind of amalgamated something that they think makes sense to them. But also, also there's a lot of confusion about the Lord's Supper because, well, the world is always been confused by the Lord's Supper. I mean, think about it. It's a weird thing to teach. We, we teach, we talk of eating the body and blood of Jesus. You might think that that's a, sounds just like a wholesome thing on the face of it. And if you were to find out that your kid was reading some book about eating the body and blood of some deity, you're going to have some questions about that book a weird thing to teach. In fact, it was incredibly common in the early days of the church for, for Christians to be accused of cannibalism by outsiders looking in. 
for those on the fringe who could only hear about and speculate what that group of Christians were doing in the early church, it was incredibly common for the early church to be accused of cannibalism. You can just hear the rumors starting to get passed around in places like Corinth and Ephesus, right? I mean, it's one thing for a sophisticated pagan to, you know, eat meat to a formerly sacrificed idol as a way of, you know, adoring and showing honor to that deity. But to take the next step and reportedly eat the body and drink the blood of that God himself, well, that's a pretty barbaric sounding thing, right? I mean, isn't it? So the Lord's Supper has always, always been a confusing thing for those outside the church. What makes it even more complicated is that it's always, always been a really confusing thing for those inside the church as well. In fact, there's been a lot of blood shed over this. A lot of blood shed over this. During the English portion of the Protestant Reformation, 16th and 17th centuries, there were hundreds of people. Emphasis on the S. Hundreds of people who were burned at the stake for refusing to believe the, the, the Catholic position that Jesus' body and blood were literally in the Lord's Supper elements. They were burned at the stake for that. They were given the opportunity to recant their beliefs and instead embrace the Catholic position or else face public execution and I mean, we, we can be honest about that. That was a pretty dark day in the history of the church, right? I mean, we can, we can mourn the false testimony of Jesus and his bride that that gave to the lost world, right? But there's also another way of looking at that time period. Another way of looking at that time period is to see that there is something incredibly important of here that hundreds of people were willing to be made martyrs for for the sake of practicing. Apparently, it mattered to them. It mattered to them. They went to the flames, refusing to budge even a tiny bit on something that a lot of people in our day and age have never been bothered enough to stop and think carefully about. I don't know, maybe there's an indictment there for us. Right? Could it be could it be that how we view the Lord's Supper actually ends up telling us a whole bunch about what we do and don't believe in other incredibly important areas, areas like bigger theological issues like salvation and what Jesus did or did not accomplish on the cross? Could it be that the Lord's Supper actually tips our hand to what it is we believe about the most massive of theological issues? And so I think we find ourselves in the very same situation we found ourselves seven days ago, right? In, in order to answer why we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a church, we first have to answer what the Lord's Supper even is. But in order to answer that question faithfully, I think we need to take another step back and answer what the gospel is. Right? Because without this answer, all this stuff in the middle gets really weird. And all we can do is presume some things. And so when we get the gospel picture correct, maybe those other two will end up slotting in quite nicely. We won't have to do all that, all that much work, really. So, we've got to talk about the gospel. So what's the gospel? Well, Mark 15. Let's see how the story plays out. Mark 15, I'm going to pick it up in uh, verse 16. 
We could start earlier, but uh, y'all don't want to be here for two hours. So, Mark 16. And the soldiers led him away inside, their pal- inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them and to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him, uh, against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemet sebachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it up to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Okay, so we, we spent the first part of our time last week discussing the ramifications of the gospel, right? When Jesus' death in our place uh, accomplishes our justification before God and our reconciliation with God. All right, that's what we talked about last week. That, that took up the lion's share of our time. In other words, we, we don't bring any merit or posturing of our own. We simply trust him and his work on our behalf by faith, and that faith is enough. Right? And so there's no need at all to add any man made effort back into the gospel equation, up to and including things like baptism. As important and commanded as baptism is, that is not a piece of the gospel equation because Jesus doesn't need us to add our peace. He doesn't need that from us. He's commanded that from us, but he doesn't need that from us. We believe that Jesus' death on the cross actually accomplished what he set out to accomplish. Justification and reconciliation. Or we could say it this way, the cross was an effectual work. It was an effectual work. And here in Mark's gospel, we see the specifics of how that effectual work played out. We see how a blood-bought grace was actually secured for us. And the answer is by lots and lots of blood. A whole bunch of it. The death of Jesus 
If you've never really sat down and thought through it, man, the death of Jesus was a violent event. It was an incredibly violent event. The one who was perfectly innocent of sin, he was falsely tried, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was spat upon. He was led around like some kind of circus show for everybody to have their turn at. He had his beard ripped out. He had the skin torn from his back and his shoulders. And he was nailed to a wooden stake and hung in the air, left to suffocate as the crowd continued to make fun of him. It was a violent act. The only person in all of history who did not deserve to die. Why not? Because he hadn't earned the wages for sin. The only person in all of history who did not deserve to die. I deserve to die. You deserve to die. But he did not deserve to die. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. So so what does that mean? It means that the one who was perfectly innocent of sin had the sin of his people placed upon him, accounted to him, and he willingly accepted, accepted the wages that sin deserved. That's what that means. He said, I'll take it. He had not earned the wages of sin, but our sin was accredited to him, accounted to him. And so he absorbed that sin and made payment for that sin. Not part of the wages. His bloody death wasn't a down payment. He didn't get us 99% of the way there so that we could add our 1%. He didn't open a door. He didn't create a platform. He died to make payment for sin. Full and final payment. In Romans 6, we're told, for the death he died to sin, or for the death he died, he died to sin, excuse me, once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Hebrews 10, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. 1 Peter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirits. So let me say it as unequivocally as I can say it. There is no more sacrifice necessary. Nothing is left to be done. He doesn't need you to come in and stoke the fire a little bit. He doesn't need you to come in and add your little piece. It is finished, he said. It is finished. Once is enough. Once is enough. The sacrifice of Jesus does not need to be repeated. It needs to be cherished. And it needs to be remembered. And ultimately, it needs to be rested in. It needs to be rested in. So how does that understanding of the gospel affect how we see things like the Lord's Supper? I mean, that's ultimately the question we're trying to answer, right? Well, to answer that question, let's flip back one chapter to chapter 14. 
flip back one chapter, 14. Uh, we're going to start in verse 12. Uh, let's look at how, let's look at the build-up to that incredibly bloody moment. All right, pop quiz real quick. Was the cross some kind of cosmic accident? Yes or no? I'm glad you know the answer to that. All right. Did, I mean, did Jesus just kind of dumb luck his way into the right result? Or, or was it the perfect fulfillment of everything that God had set forth from eternity past to enact for his people? All right. Mark 14, starting in verse 12. We see this. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us uh, go and prepare for, uh, prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and, whatever he, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, where is, my, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, Furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? Is it I? And he said to them, It is, the one, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Those are big words. Uh, verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them. And they said, and he said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Okay, so Jesus and his boys are in Jerusalem, right? Right? And the city is absolutely bursting at the seams right now. Right? For one, because it's Passover. Reverent Jews would have traveled from all over the place into the city to celebrate the Passover together. It was something that God required, and if you were a good Jew, you did it. All right? And so at the, the city is just blowing up right now. It's swelled in population. You can't find room anywhere. People are staying in town, outside of the town, traveling in. The city is bursting at the seams. Secondly, though, we also see that the city is buzzing because Jesus has been picking a fight with the religious authorities there. He goes into the temple, right? We talked about this on Palm Sunday a few weeks ago. He goes into the temple and he starts turning stuff over and he starts uh, uh, accosting people, right? And so he absolutely, 100%, intentionally picks a fight with the religious authorities. It's almost like he's trying to get himself killed. Just an idea. So, that, so things are getting more and more crowded and more and more tense as the week goes on, aren't they? But now it's time to get things ready for the Passover. That's why everybody's here. It's time to celebrate. Got to find a place that's got some spare room. There's a lot involved with getting the meal ready. It's time to get the meal ready. Let's go, boys. Baked into the history and the identity of God's people is this millennia-old celebration of God rescuing them out of bondage. Have they always faithfully observed it? Not even close. There are seasons where they had to rediscover what God commanded them to do. 
But all the way back in Exodus 12, the command is given, do this every year. Do this every year. An equally tense moment. And in another city ready to burst at the seams, God commanded his people to gather together with their families to slaughter a spotless lamb. To, uh, he called them to, to trust his promise to them by painting the, the lintels and the doorposts with this lamb's blood that they had caught carefully in a bowl and to wait patiently for God to do exactly what God said he was going to do. Right? That's the celebration he handed down to them. Do this. I know you want to do all these other things. No, do this and then wait. Wait for me to do exactly what I'm telling you I'm going to do. And then after God rescued them out of that slavery, he commanded them to remind themselves of exactly what he has done all the time. Every year. It was a one-time sacrifice. But no, 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 we need to remember this. Repeat the picture. I've already saved you but repeat the picture. He gave them a picture to help them never forget what it is that he had done for them by his goodness and by his grace alone. They didn't earn their way out of Egypt. They didn't fight their way out. They didn't follow a list of Commands that properly postured them to finally be pleasing to God. One act of faith. Now repeat the picture. And repeat it all the time. And that's the meal that Jesus and his boys are getting ready to eat. That's the meal they're celebrating. And in verse 22, we're told that Jesus commandeers this ancient celebration of remembrance. A spotless lamb was again headed for the slaughter. Blood was going to be spilt. Just like God's people a millennia before we too are called to trust his promise, to trust that he, was, that he would do exactly what he said he would do. And so, and so Jesus picks up some, some unleavened bread and something that every Jewish person in that room, meaning everybody in that room, would have immediately associated with sinlessness. He says, this is my body. That's a bold claim. That's a really bold claim. Say this sinless picture is you. And so Jesus is either a liar or he's right. Picks up this unleavened bread and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. The one who knew no sin, right? He, he picks up a, a cup and he says, this is the new covenant of my blood. The meal they're celebrating that night, it was the very first stage of that old covenant. The very first inklings of a sacrificial system to come once they finally made it out into the wilderness. Revolving around the sacrifice of the animal, right? 
Jesus reroutes this ancient remembrance for the Jews and he turns it into something far, far more cosmic. Far more cosmic. The spotless lamb was going to do far, far more than save us from mere physical slavery. Why go through all the trouble, right? I mean, think about it. That seems like a lot of work. Like, like, why would God command that the Jews remember the Passover every year? And, and then on the heels of that, why would Jesus command that we remember his sacrifice by the Lord's Supper? Like, like that seems like a lot of stuff to, to, to kind of pull off all the time. Like, why would we go to the trouble? We've, we've got the event. I mean, why do we need the picture? You want the short answer? It's because we're morons. You want me to say it louder for the folks in the back? I mean, this is just the truth, right? And I need the picture. I need the picture. Are you any better than me on that? I'm guessing not. We need rhythms that call our attention back away from ourselves and the petty, smaller things that we think are our biggest problems. Or at least I do. And just like we saw last week with baptism, God in his goodness has given us this incredibly tactile thing that we can look at and remember, that we can experience and remember. He's good like that. He knows our frame and he has accounted for my frailty, my weakness of will and character. He's accounted for my inclination to fall back into old habits of belief that I'm somehow the one that needs to fix my problems. Fall into that habit pretty regularly, actually. So follow the logic here. It doesn't matter what this group is teaching or what that group might want to teach and turn it into according to the Bible, I think. The Lord's Supper is not something that we participate in in order to charge up again on grace for a little while. And it's not something we participate in to add to our treasury of merit to be enjoyed later. It is a good and incredibly simple gift from God to remind us that His work is sufficient and we don't have to add our peace. That he has already done what we could never do. It is a sweet, external picture of the internal reality that we are loved by him and that we are now enabled to do exactly, to trust what he said he would do. And this is why we don't make it some kind of overly somber thing here when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It, it, it doesn't need somber. We, I mean, we want to approach the Lord's Supper with a reverent heart, and we want to approach the Lord's Supper with uh, true repentance, but at the same time, heaping a bunch of pretense upon this moment kind of misses the point, doesn't it? Pretense is a problem. Why? Because we're not performing anything. We're resting from all performance. 
So we want to strip pretense away. Bare bones is kind of better here because it, it reminds us that Jesus still doesn't need us. We don't have to be the ones to pull anything off. We're reminding ourselves in that moment that, that only the spotless lamb can take care of our problems, that only the spotless lamb can free us from the bondage of sin. The aesthetics going on around the observance of the Lord's Supper, that's just window dressing. And if, if the window dressing helps us lean into the goodness and sweetness of Christ in that moment, then great, we'll, we'll enjoy that too. But if the window dressing is ever a distraction from the goodness and sweetness of Christ, if it ever distracts us from who he is and what he w- has done, then it would honestly be better if that window dressing was never there. It's in the way. And we need to get rid of it. If it ever becomes something that... that that we must accomplish in order to appear with a certain level of piety or a certain level of, of religiosity, then it would be better if we stripped it all away. This isn't a matter of high church versus low church. To, to surround the picture of Jesus' finished work on our behalf with a bunch of things that we've got to perform, well, what that does is it incorrectly illustrates the gospel. We've told the wrong story. Gets the picture wrong. And this, this is why some folks were willing to be burned at the stake for it. You don't don't go to the stake being willing to be burned to death because you have a loose interpretation of what this picture is saying. To surround the picture of Jesus' finished work on our behalf with a bunch of things that we've got to perform, it incorrectly illustrates the gospel. They didn't go to their deaths clinging to some lesser dogmatic point that didn't really matter to them. They, They were clinging to the very life that the gospel is only capable of giving. And so we preach the gospel, and then through the picture of the Lord's Supper, we illustrate the gospel. And both of those are really, really important, aren't they? Both of those require clarity. And so a question emerges, I think, or at least I feel like it's a good question. Who is the picture of the gospel in the Lord's Supper given for? Like, like it's one thing to say we need to correctly illustrate the gospel with how we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but who's that picture given to? Like, who's the audience there? And I think, I think that the answer is actually broader than we probably think it is, or at least if you haven't stopped and given it very much thought yet. I, I turn one more time. We've got one more text to look at. 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Um, so just between you and me, I really wanted to avoid this text this week. Um, and the reason for that is that two months from this Sunday... We're going to be looking at this text when we, refer, when we return back to our Corinthians series. And so I tried to wiggle out of it. I tried to, to look at all the different places in the Bible that we could spend our time on looking at the Lord's Supper and refining our understanding of the Lord's Supper. But you just can't avoid this text if you want to talk about the Lord's Supper. So we got to deal with it. All right? uh, we can't treat it fairly, uh, especially if you want to talk about how the Lord's Supper is, uh, you know, 
done within the church. All right, so um, if you are new here, if maybe you haven't been here for our Corinthians series, uh, Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to uh, a young church in the city of Corinth. They were an incredibly young church. They were an incredibly talented church, but they were also an incredibly arrogant church. All right, they got all kinds of junk going on. All right, and so... Um, Paul's approach uh, to uh, gently and lovingly correcting them, his approach is to constantly bring them back to the reality that God's kingdom is, it looks different and it operates differently than the, all the kingdoms of the world that they might be used to. It values different things. It chase after, chases after different things. It exalts and lifts up different things. And so, hey, uh, it, it's marked by humility and, and by an others-focused kind of service. And so that's what God's kingdom looks like. And it doesn't look anything at all like all the kingdoms of the world. All right, and so anybody want to take a guess as to whether or not this incredibly arrogant young church in Corinth got the Lord's Supper right? Or if maybe, just maybe, they practice the Lord's Supper with the same kind of problems that they practice everything else? Think they messed that one up? Well, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17, Paul says this, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. That's not a good start. All right? For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order for those who are genu uh, genuine to, among you to, uh, you may... I completely misread that sentence. Verse 19, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. That's the way you read a sentence. Verse 20, uh, when you come together, it is not for the, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Uh, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Let's call a time out there. All right, so Paul is hearing reports of folks rushing to the table before others can even get there and eating all the food. And so people are literally going hungry around the Lord's Supper. He's hearing reports of people getting drunk on the wine. He's hearing reports of factions boxing out other factions of the church, make sure they can't get to the, to the Lord's table. It's a giant mess, right? That nothing about that scenario sounds healthy. Nothing. And so put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. All right, if that's the reports that you're getting back from Chloe's people or whoever, all right, if those are the reports that you're getting back, how do you choose to address the nonsense? Right? Like, what, what's your next move? Well, Paul chooses to counter their practice with the very opposite. He counters that with the humble picture that Jesus originally set it all up with. In verse 23, he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, so just like last week, 
when we ask who this picture is for. Last week we had the picture of baptism. We discovered that it was for you. We discovered that it was for friends and family. We discovered that it was for the church family. Just like last week, uh, when we ask who is this picture, the Lord's Supper, the picture of the Lord's Supper, who is it for? Again, we have multiple audiences. We have multiple audiences. In fact, I think we have three again. Shock. The first one is obvious, right? It's for you. It's for you. When we take these elements together and we call you to to contemplate in, in that moment, it is a very personal gospel need that we want you to lean into. This isn't for somebody else. It's for you. Paul says, examine yourself. Judge yourself rightly, he says. And a lot of people, man, they wrongly believe that that their sin disqualifies them from the Lord's Supper. They've screwed up too much this week, and they got too much incorrect. And, you know, I just need need to figure some things out first, right? I got to get some stuff cleaned up, then, then I'll be better. But that's just another gross misunderstanding of the gospel. It's your sin that necessitates this meal. It's not your sin that disqualifies you. It's a failure to repent that makes you unfit for this meal. We are weak, but he is good. And this is why the church has a responsibility to not allow those under disciplined care to participate in the Lord's Supper. They've shown a pattern of refusing to repent. And so the fruit of their life disqualifies them from the table. To let someone partake of an external gospel picture when they don't actually believe it internally, that's a gigantic problem. So the church has a responsibility to guard that, right? Not only is it the kind of thing that Paul warns against here, but it's also the kind of thing that Jesus warns against in the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember your Bibles well, Matthew 7, uh, Jesus has a bunch of people come to him and say, Jesus, didn't we do this in your name? And didn't we do this in your name? We did all these spiritual things. And he says, what? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. Who cares that you did all these spiritual things? I, the, heart was, <laughs> the heart wasn't there. And so affirming outward spiritual actions when it's clear that the heart isn't there, that's a problem. It's dangerous. Some people are going to land in hell that way. It's not a good thing. Paul is serious when he calls the Corinthians to judge themselves rightly. Repentance matters. It really matters. And so the first audience this picture is for, it's personal. It's for you. But listen, it's not only personal. It's not just for you. There's a second audience. Those who are outsiders. Those who are not Christians yet. We make it clear whenever we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together that, um, that these elements are for Jesus' people, right? They're for those who are actually followers of Jesus. There's nothing magical about them. It's just bread and, and juice. But, but for those who belong to Jesus, it's, it's something way, way more than that, right? There's something deeper and truer going on. Um, I've been wearing this uh, black silicone wedding band thing for a few months now. It goes doing, 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 doing. All right, um, 
And so it helps me for a lot of different things in my life. And, and for those of you who might be concerned, I totally asked Katie first, so hush. All right. Um, but I, I've been wearing this for a few months now, and it, it, it's good for me for a lot of different reasons. Uh, it, but there's nothing to it. It's just a black piece of rubber. All right. I bought it online. I literally spent more money filling my car up with gas this week than I spent on this wedding band. All right. It's, there's nothing to it at all. But for me, you better keep your hands off. It's mine. And it means something to me, right? It's for me. Same, same with the bread and the juice. I mean, this little packet of thing, whatever this thing is, I'm not convinced it's food. Um, whatever it is, cough medicine and styrofoam, there's nothing special about it. It's just bread and juice. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, those of us who have legitimately placed our hope in Him and His work alone, there's something massive here for us. There's a picture that we have been given for our good. We're proclaiming something in this moment, when, when the follower of Jesus takes this stuff, it's not a snack. It's not a brief moment of refreshment. We're proclaiming who we love and who we've placed our hope in. We're proclaiming what we're aiming for. Paul says, we proclaim the Lord's death. Listen, if you're hanging out with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, listen, you've actually got a role to play in a moment when we take these elements together. Not in participating, but by watching us participate. You've got a role to play. We, we want to show you who it is we're placing our hope in. The one who died on our behalf to make full and final payment for our sin and to, to, to not only justify us, but also to reconcile us to himself. We are his. We belong to him. But not only do we want to show you what Jesus has done for us, listen, we, we really want you to know him too. You don't have to remain the outsider watching this. You can be the insider. We want you to know Jesus too. And the Bible teaches that we are all by default separated from God because of our sin, that we deserve, rightly deserve his righteous wrath. It is owed to us as wages. As we have clearly seen this morning, Jesus came to do something about the mess that we made. He came to fix it. As the one who conquered both sin and death, he calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And, and listen, you can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus. And man, I'd love to be helpful to you. A little bit later, I'm, I'm going to pray. and We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. We'll sing a song. I'll be down front here. If you, man, if you want somebody to talk to about what that response of faith looks like, I'm game. Let's do it. But there's a third audience to the picture of the Lord's Supper. See, it's not just a personal thing. And it's not just an evangelistic thing. It's also a family thing. 
The third picture wrapped up in the Lord's Supper is the picture given to the gathered church. Hey, 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 what's the opposite of rushing to the table and taking everything, taking more than you need, boxing out everybody else that you don't you know, have happy feelings about? Like, what's the opposite of that? It's true gospel community, right? The, the way we take these elements also models something important. Not, not about our piety, not about our religiosity, but about our depth of love for one another. There's a reason we take it together. In Paul, verse 33, Paul says, wait for one another. Wait for one another. Oh, but wait a second. I, I've got some ideas about how to make things more efficient around here, right? What if, just hear me out, we, we have everybody take the Lord's Supper elements. As soon as they walk in the door, they'll drop it in the trash can right there, and then we can move on, right? I mean, we'll just get it out of the way, and then Stephen can preach for a whole hour. Wouldn't that be great? That'd be special. Like, I got some ideas about how to streamline this stuff. Woo! Wouldn't that be better? And it, it would be better if all we were concerned about was trying to check off some religious box for the morning, right? Have we handled the Lord's Supper? Yes or no? Check. But we intentionally slow it down and take it together for a, a couple of reasons, actually. One is because we get to serve each other. We get to serve each other. I, I, I don't just hate these things because they taste weird. I hate these things because single serve is the wrong picture. It's not what we're aiming at. Single serve does not exist in the life of a healthy church. Now, obviously, we're doing it right now for, you know, safety's sake. We, we, we want to be responsible, and so we're trying to take precautionary measures and make sure that you know, people don't have to touch other people's stuff. That's, that's not a good thing right now. But, man, I cannot wait for the day when we're done with precautionary measures. Right? There's wisdom in the temporary, but when that temporary season is over, we'll kick it to the curb. Gladly so. No matter which tradition you come out of, whether it's the passing the plate around thing, you know, letting everybody grab their element one at a time as the plate slowly makes its way and somebody sings a special up here. Whether it's that tradition or maybe you come out of the tradition where everybody stands in the even more painfully long line to come and get it from the front. Don't know why, but that thing always lasts about 15 more minutes than you like plan for it to last. All right? No matter which tradition you come out of, all right, uh, both of those are really just nothing more than a practical attempt to flesh out the serve one another assumption that Jesus seems to want from us. We're not aiming for efficiency. We're aiming for community in both of those examples. Do they do it in different ways? Yeah. Does, is one more effective than the other? I don't know. But both of them are just trying to be a serving of one another rather than a hurry up and get it done. That's what we're going for. So the first reason we slow it down is because we get to serve each other. The second reason we slow it down is because we are practicing for an eternal feast. An eternal feast. Paul doesn't just say that we proclaim, that we proclaim the Lord's death. What does he say? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a finish line to this, guys. There's a finish line to this. This meal doesn't just look backwards to what Jesus has done. This meal also points forwards to what Jesus has promised to do. 
Those are both being celebrated as we take the Lord's Supper together. This, this meal doesn't just look backwards. It also looks forward. The best illustration I've ever, I think, heard of this is that the Lord's Supper is kind of, sort of, like the rehearsal dinner as we get ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't know who came up with that first, but it's a really good picture. I like it. Jesus has promised to collect his bride one day. He's called us, he promised that he will one day bring us home. And then, oh church, on that day, the real party will begin. And that meal, I promise it won't be efficient either. It's going to be long and dragged out and nobody will mind. It'll be a good day. It'll be a good day. Until then, we've been commanded to regularly practice with the ones that we'll be hanging out with when that day finally gets here. We get to practice our good day. So I'm looking forward to it. How about you? So if you are a follower of Jesus, then how do you respond to God's word today? Well, we preach the gospel, and then we illustrate the gospel through the Lord's Supper. So pick up your cup. This is not something we rush. Paul says, judge yourself rightly. So take a moment and contemplate. Your sin is real. And it requires a price. Jesus came to pay that price in full. His death on the cross was for you. It was for you. Everything that you rightly deserve from the hand of a wrathful God was fully and freely soaked up by your Savior. Jesus picked up some bread. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. He suffered under mock trial. He was scourged. He was ridiculed. He was spat upon. He was left to die. It was a violent act. But one he endured for the joy that was set before him. Those of you who are followers of Jesus, your sin has a price tag. Take and eat. Somewhere in the course of this meal, and there's a lot of scholarly debate in healthy Christian circles about when and how. But somewhere in the course of this meal, Jesus picks up a cup, or maybe a second cup, depending on which commentator you like. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. 
the Israelites had a really long history with bloody sacrifices. Over and over again, it was commanded to them. They practiced it for a thousand years. And yet, the priest had to stand daily at the temple because the sacrifices were never over. There was always more sin to pay the price for. Jesus fixed that. He made one sacrifice and then sat down at the right hand of God. I am thankful for the new covenant. I don't have enough sheep in the barn. But our spotless lamb is good. Father of Jesus, take and drink. Father, would you, would you set this picture deep in our hearts? In your goodness, you've given us this tangible little thing to call our attention back to who you are and what you have done. You sent your son. He has provided for our every need. Justified and reconciled. God, help us trust that. Help us trust you. You are the God who keeps your promises. Father, for those who may be watching on the fringe today, not participating because they don't know you yet, would you do something about that this morning as well? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know this morning? Would you draw men and women to yourself as we preach the gospel and as we illustrate the gospel? Make the picture stick. Call them to repentance and even better, to find their rest in you. And Father, for those in here who are a part of our church family, would you strengthen us by this picture? Would you do a mighty work as we illustrate the humility that we need to approach your cross? That you've called us to model after you. May we love our brother and sister well as you make a name for yourself here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.